He's distinguished. He's slightly aristocratic. He's British. And he knows better than anyone else how to set a proper table. Certainly up to the standards of Agnes Van Ryn. He's Bannister, the butler, on Julian Fellow's HBO series, The Gilded Age. And for many, he's a very favorite character in the drama. Bannister is portrayed in all his proper glory by veteran actor of stage and screen, Simon Jones. And for today's show, I was honored to be joined by Simon himself earlier this year for a wide-ranging talk about not only his life as Bannister, but his entire career. Simon Jones has done so many roles and has been responsible for so many iconic portrayals that I do think it's fair to say in this case, the butler absolutely did it. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we journey into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Butlers seem to know everything. They certainly see almost everything, and most of the time, they keep it to themselves. I am so very excited because in this episode of the Gilded Gentleman, the actor we all know as Bannister, the Gilded Age butler, does talk and tells all. Well, a lot anyway. I had the honor to sit down with Simon Jones and have a talk about productions he's done, actors he's worked with including Sir Lawrence Olivier, Lauren Bacall, Angela Lansbury, and John Cleese, and just what it's like to film a series like The Gilded Age. So there is perhaps no better time to pour a nice cup of tea, or perhaps Bannister will pour it for you. And join us for a look beyond the footlights and behind the cameras and into the career of Simon Jones. Simon Jones is one of the most distinguished actors performing today. His career has included iconic roles in radio drama, stage, film, and television, including the role of Arthur Dent in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, roles in Blackadder 2, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, the role of Lord Brideshead in Brideshead Revisited for Granada Television, and of course, most recently, his role as Bannister in HBO's The Gilded Age, written by Julian Fellows. His theatrical work has included roles on the stages of Broadway and London's West End in the plays of Tom Stoppard, Noel Coward, and the acclaimed production of Farinelli in The King, which co-starred Mark Rylance. Over his career, he has shared billing with a veritable who's who of Britain and America's stage and screen stars from Sir Lawrence Olivier to Dame Maggie Smith. And Simon Jones joins the Gilded Gentleman today for a talk about it all. Simon, I am so deeply grateful to have you here and heartily welcome you to the Gilded Gentleman. Well, thank you, Carl. I'm hardly able to speak after that introduction. Um, <laughs> I like distinguished, particularly. I think long-lasting is probably uh, durable, maybe, 
is probably a better adjective for my career. Well, possibly, but you're, you're continuing, you keep going. You've but, kept yeah, going, and, right? And you heard of me, and, and people have, so that, that'll do. You're right. And we're going to talk about as much of it as we possibly can today. <laughs> so, first of all, for listeners, I always like to give them mm. a visual. And, and today, the Gilded Gentlemen, we have returned to the library of the Salma Gundy Club here on Lower Fifth Avenue in New York. Simon and I are both members of the club here for our chat today. And this room with its leather sofas and Windsor chairs and old books and sculptures. Simon, I think it's really the perfect room for us to discuss, certainly some of your characters in your career. What do you think about that? Mm, yes, I think you're probably right, actually. <laughs> Never quite moved into the 21st century. Well, you know, it's interesting, neither have I. Uh, I well, think it's I, no, very- No, you certainly haven't. <laughs> you haven't moved into the 20th. No, and, and I love that, right? Love it, it really makes me, I live somewhere in about 1870, I think, <laughs> and probably in Britain, not in America. But, mm. you know, interestingly, um, I was told at one point that members from the production staff and set crew actually had come here to the Selma Gundy to look at the house, uh, which was built in 1853, and do some measurements in the creation for the fictitious Van Ryn mansion in the Gilded Age. Is that true? I'm pretty sure that must be the case. I did mention it to uh, Gareth Neem, the producer, that I was now a member of the Salma Gundy, and he must come and see it. He said, I think our crew already went. And I have to say, looking at the set on the Gilded Age, the downstairs adjoining rooms are, are the living spit of the Salma Gundy. So they must indeed have done that. Well, once I had heard that, I started looking at the, the Van Ryn house a little bit differently, right? And we're certainly going to get to the Gilded Age, but we're going to talk about so many aspects of your career over the years, iconic roles that you've done, actors that you've worked with. But I'd like to start with one moment that you've talked about in interviews. When you came and sat down for the read-through of, of the script of The Gilded Age, you've said that that was like being at an old family reunion. Why did you say that, and what do you mean by that? Well, it was as if my entire theatrical life in, in New York had flashed before me. I began to wonder whether the wheel hadn't just simply come full circle. All these people who were sitting around I had worked with at some stage or another, or knew of well enough to, uh, to be on nodding acquaintance, or were keen to meet, at least for the first time. But it was astonishing. I could look around the table, and there was Michael Countryman. I hadn't seen him in ages. Bill Irwin was there. Well, I don't, the list is endless. You know the list of the cast. Christine uh, Baranski, Cynthia Baransky. Nixon. And I'd, both, was... I'd worked with both of them in uh, Mike Nichols' The Real Thing way back in 1984. So that was a fond reunion. And uh, it was just delightful to be uh, in the company of people I knew. I think that's wonderful, certainly in the theatrical profession, mm. to come back to colleagues that you worked with a number of years ago and see how you've each grown and changed and evolved. And it was the unique thing about uh, that particular moment in time with the pandemic and Broadway having shut down. Suddenly, all these people were available to do whatever and, uh, and, and keen to do it. It, it really was a who's who of currently on Broadway. It was. I think that was one of the most extraordinary things about the casting of the show is we, we saw people that we're used to seeing on stage or even in musical roles in a couple of cases. Yeah. And we got to see them stretch their dramatic wings a little bit. So, Simon, your taste for theater, I really want to go back in time here. Your, your taste for theater really came early when you were in high school. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, Bubbles, as we used to call her, the headmaster's wife, Elizabeth Bentley was directing She Stoops to Conquer, and I must have been about 16 at the time. And for some perverse reason, she cast me as old Marlowe in She Stoops to Conquer. And uh, I got a taste for it. I just thought, oh, this is rather fun. I like the costumes, and people are listening to what I have to say. 
how amazing. And then I went on to do a play called The Stronger Lonely, directed by my English master, by a German playwright called Fritz Hochwelder, about a German... God, I suppose they had searched everywhere to find a single-sex play, because we were a single-sex school in those days. Not anymore. And um, it was about a Jesuit colony in Paraguay, and the father provincial, which I played, um, suddenly realizes during the play that he has created a terrible heaven on earth instead of preparing them for heaven in heaven. Bunk, but never mind. It worked as a play, and uh, I had a death scene. And the death scene went on for quite some time as I lay there having been fatally wounded by accident by one of my own faithful. And I paused for a second, and I suddenly thought, you'd hear a pin drop. I say... Oh, I like this. It's an experience I've never had since, of course, but I had full attention of the room. I thought, maybe, they thought I'd forgotten my lines. That could have been it, too, because that often brings a sort of pull onto an audience. But uh, it was a sense of uh, control that I rather liked and uh, gave me a bit of a kick. So then you arrived at Cambridge, and when you did, you and your family thought perhaps you would follow a course of law to read law, but you chose... Otherwise, oh, well, what I, happened when you got there? Well, I didn't choose. It was chosen for me. Yes, Uncle Fred had said, he said in one pompous letter, which I still have somewhere, saying, I, I think uh, a career in the law would be a wise thing to do. I, I went there thinking, well, there'd be something to do, you know, because my mother had said, well, please have a degree in something before you become an actor. And I was talking to the, uh, to the law tutor who was uh, for admissions, and after about two minutes' conversation, he said, you've no inclination, aptitude, or competence in law. Why are you here? I said, well, Uncle Fred? The hell with Uncle Fred, he said. Go away and read your best subject. What is it? English. Go on. And that was my interview. Got a place, and that was it. I didn't even see the English tutor. It was so, I must have written a decent paper, I suppose. But they knew it was a waste of time, me learning law. Now, your friendship with the writer Douglas Adams came from your connection, actually in Cambridge, to the, the Footlights Club. And that, of course, led to one of your most iconic characters that you've played, which was in the, in the radio production of uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Can you talk about how all that came about? Yes, quite simply, actually. Uh, Douglas was a year behind me at uh, Cambridge. He was a different college. But I was, uh, at that time some minor role on the committee of the Footlights Review Club. And um, we had two, what they called smoking concerts in those days, a term in which people came and did their sketches. And they auditioned me, for me, on that particular occasion. And I was the one who decided what would go into the next smoking concert. And Douglas was desperate to get into the uh, Footlights. And so he brought along this sketch with two friends. And uh, it was a rather strange and silly sketch in which someone... someone gave him a glass of water, which he drank, and him being very tall, the other fellow uh, cranked his arm like a water pump, and he spat the water out into the face of the person who'd just given him the glass. This struck me as inordinately funny, but to nobody else at all. They thought this was extremely puerile, but I insisted that he become a member of uh, Footlights, and he never forgot. Uh, one interesting side note is there's another member of Footlights at that time was Julian Fellows, who used to come and bring his sketches, also from the same college, funnily enough. And we say, oh, here's Julian, yes, what's he got this time? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, have him in, you know. Little knowing that this was the start of an amazingly illustrious career as a writer and performer. 
and that you two have now crossed paths in more recent times. Yes, but we really didn't know each other then. That was what was so odd. We knew of each other, but we hadn't really, we didn't socialize or anything. I met him once in the interim, sometime in Los Angeles at a dinner party at Anthony Andrews's on Blue Jay Way in California, which he remembered and I didn't, which was a bit embarrassing. But anyway, we now know who we are now. So your friendship with Douglas Adams, it was actually a number of years later, correct, that he contacted you and said, I'm writing something and Mm. I think I'm writing a character for you. Yeah, Douglas and I kept in touch thereafter. Yes, he he was uh, embarking on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, of which there are many reports of its origin. I think the most mythological was that he was lying in a field in a campsite in Europe, looking up at the stars and thinking, with a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, thinking... I mean, it's too easy, and I'm sure it's not quite how it worked, but it'll do as a piece of mythology. But anyway, he was, finally, after much effort, commissioned to write a pilot by the BBC, radio pilot. Ah, because Star Wars had come out, and finally, the BBC, the radio, which is, of course, the perfect medium for science fiction, because you can let your imagination run riot, the radio had said, oh, there's no real demand for this sort of thing. There'd been a few sporadic efforts, like Journey into Space, but... They didn't really understand the, uh, the potential of radio to, to do science fiction. But they finally gave in because of the obvious success of Star Wars and thought maybe they'll make their contribution. So they gave Douglas commission to write the pilot. And he was on the phone to me and said, I've written this character with you in mind. What was it about you and who you oh, were? You may well made ask. Him, well, that made I him did. create um, Arthur Dent. Well, exactly. I, do I really go around complaining about not getting a decent cup of tea? And... and uh, <laughs> I would. Am I generally grumpy at this, in this sort of thing? Is that my response to the most amazing things that happen in the universe? And that's actually, you know, over the years, my God, it's nearly 40, 50 years, heavens, I've realized it's really more about him. I think he was channeling him th- himself through me. He's the one who like, used to like long baths desperately in search of inspiration and was notorious for never getting his deadlines. He loved the sound of them whooshing by, he used to say. And with that, Simon and I will take a short break, but we'll be back. There is so much more to say. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I am joined by actor Simon Jones, known to many as Bannister the Butler on the HBO series The Gilded Age. Now, you made your West End debut in a play by Peter Luke, mm. Bloomsbury. And one of your colleagues in that production was Penelope Wilton, yes. with whom you worked again, of course, when you played King George V in Downton Abbey, the film. So here we have another reunion. Yes. So what was it like playing with Penelope in that early production? And what was it like seeing her again, working with her in Downton? Well, I had hardly anything to do in Bloomsbury. I played a variety of parts. And Penny Wilton and I really had very little to do with. But later, when we all met for Downton Abbey, we were talking about Bloomsbury. I raised the matter, and she, she remembered vaguely, whether she remembered me particularly. And she was saying uh, that, sadly, she didn't have a poster of that one, and she rather hoped she had, because it was where she met Daniel Massey, and they subsequently married. And I said, well, that's very sad, but I have a spare one. And she was staggered. So, next day, I brought it to set. And she was thrilled. So that again, you see, this particular period of my life, the wheel keeps coming circle. 
full circle. I hope it goes off round for another revolution. The only thing is I don't want it to stop. Oh, I don't think it will, so I'm not <laughs> to worry. So I want to ask you about another Penelope with whom you have worked and who's truly, truly one of my favorites, and that's Penelope Keith. Yes. And you starred uh, with her in George Bernard Shaw's production of The Millionaires in the West End. What can you share about the experience of that production and the experience of working with her? Oh, well, uh, great fun. I mean, she's... Uh, Definitely one of the lads. And, and uh, the, the only sad thing about that particular production was that she fell out in a big way with um, Nigel Hawthorne because uh, she used to say, uh, based on her experience in that series called The Good Life in England, and I can't remember what it's called over here, but it's not quite the same title, you know, about yes, people course. doing a vegetable garden self-sufficiently in suburbia. Margot. Yeah, she was the famous Margot, <laughs> made her name. And she's been Margot ever since. I remember her saying there were several rules of comedy that one must stick to. And Nigel disagreed profoundly that there were such, there were such things. And they just didn't really quite hit it off. But we did fine in the play. So, Simon, you've said that so many of your roles have, have actually not come from blind auditions. They've come from people who have known your work or were creating a, a production and thought you would be perfect for it, which indeed has been the case. One of your iconic roles very much was in the 1981 Granada television production of the adaptation of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, and you, of course, played Lord Brideshead. Can you talk about how that role came to be? Because that seems like that, too, was a bit by chance. Hmm. Well, at the time, previous to that, uh, previous to having been directed by uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg in uh, The Millionaires, of which we were talking earlier, I was doing a play for the Royal Shakespeare Company called uh, called Privates on Parade by Peter Nichols. Peter Nichols, the author of... Uh, Private on Parade uh, won an award at the Evening Standard, the London newspaper, daily newspaper. And um, he invited his friend Joe Melia, who had originated the part in The Day and the Death of Joe Egg, his first great success, as his guest. And he wanted to make reference to him in his acceptance speech, which would have been very nice. But Joe Melia, being a bit of a rebel, didn't like the idea of awards and didn't go and said, you go instead, without telling Peter. And I found myself sitting next to uh, the author of Rumpole of the Bailey, uh, John Mortimer. And uh, we had a fine old chat. He said, I don't think much of this wine, I think. Uh, and being an expert, he said, I think I'll send for some better. So we had a very nice evening, chattering away. And during the course of the conversation, he revealed that he was writing a six-part treatment of Brideshead Revisited for Granada TV. And he said, you'd be, you'd be good in that. Yes. Oh, this has happened to me a few times, actually. Uh, so, so that's rather fortunate. Turned out, of course, when Peter Nichols was uh, found that uh, Joe Melia had not come and I'd gone in his stead, he was fit to be tied. But that's another story and, and really up to Joe and Peter. But uh, that actually didn't lead to my being cast in Brideshead, but must have planted a seed. Who knows? But anyway, Michael Lindsay Hogg was the one who cast me. So, Simon, in terms of preparing the role of Lord Brideshead, you've said that when you were growing up, your father was actually an estate agent for the Earl of Suffolk, and you've suggested that that really helped you, in, in, a, in a way, understand the mindset of, of Bridey and helped you prepare the role. Can you talk a little bit about that and what your perspective was that came from that experience? Yes. I think it contributed to the sense of entitlement. The thing about uh, playing Bridey, who was, let's face it, not a very sympathetic character, but was, uh, was that he is entirely uncomplicated. He believes absolutely in every word of the Catholic Church's dogma and cannot understand why anyone would deviate from it. And from then on, he's, he's vaguely mystified and has absolutely no sense of humor. And I thought once I had both, both of those characteristics, it was actually fairly easy to play. I really enjoyed doing that scene where I explained to uh, Julia and Charles my engagement to Beryl, 
And that was a rather clever thing that they did in the series because they never introduced my wife. Everyone had an opinion about her and everyone expressed one. But I think rather than throw a reflection back on the attitudes of the main characters, they decided never to introduce her. So she never really appeared. Some people said they thought she was awfully good, who, who, whoever it was who played Beryl. And whoever it was, I don't know, because she wasn't in it. Now, Brideshead really did become a, a cult classic. When, when it came out, I was in college, and we had Brideshead parties down by the pond with champagne and strawberries, and we all were trying to be Sebastian and Charles, of course. Mm. When you were creating the series, did you have any sense that it was going to be the enormous hit that it became? Well, we knew it was going to be epic because we'd been doing it for so long. And there were some wonderful mind-boggling scenes, like, for example, the, the, the hunt meet where they all gather in the, in the, uh, on the frosty morning. And that was a grisly day because I'd been riding the day before, getting used to a new horse. I'd learnt on a very nice, friendly old horse called Cheddar, farmer's horse, quite round. could hardly get my legs round, round. And um, the master of the horse, as he called himself, a fellow called Roy Street, I remember his name to this day with some resentment, introduced me to a new horse called Gus, who had a punk haircut, so there was nothing to hold on to, no mane, and his ears switched back as he looked at me, and I thought, oh dear, this is not a relationship that's going to be very good. And uh, he said, well, get on and we'll, we'll go around this field and you can familiarize yourself with him. And uh, of course there was nothing to hold on to, and I started to fall, and I fell off, crash, bang, onto the ground. He didn't care, the horse, and I lay there flexing my toes to make sure there was still feeling in them, that I wasn't going to be paralyzed for life. Obviously, I missed the tree trunks or something, cause, and it was some snow on the ground. I staggered up, and he said, well, get back on, or you'll have lost your nerve. I said, I have lost my nerve. I never want to see that horse again. Anyway, I did. Of course, the result was that I was stiff as a ball the following day, and could hardly, and I had to be helped onto the horse, and I was supposed to be the master of foxhounds in charge. So you will see in the scene that I am passing among the other people, raising and lowering my hat with a fixed grin on my face. But uh, I must tell you that there is a technician holding the head of that blasted horse and making sure, just out of camera, that he doesn't go anywhere he oughtn't to. And so uh, while I do make a contribution, it wasn't the one they intended, and I was quite glad to get off. Now, the experience of working on Brideshead allowed you to work and meet one of the truly greats, uh, Sir Laurence Olivier. Can you talk about your, re your recollections of, of working with him or time that you spent with him during that production? Yes, I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but uh, I do remember one particular evening uh, <laughs> when we were all in the same hotel, and Jeremy, who was Jeremy Irons, who was staying in another hotel, deigned to join us for dinner. So there was Sir Laurence, uh, Phoebe Nichols, who played Cordelia, me, and Jeremy Irons. And I don't know who's in a naughty mood, I suppose, Olivier, because he suddenly turned to him and said, um, now tell me about your previous marriage. Because he's by this time married to Sinead Cusack. He said, um, how did you manage to get the Pope to annul it? Was it not consummated? Jeremy was getting more and more uncomfortable and embarrassed. And he carried on at it, needling him, which is, well, we rather enjoyed it, actually. I must confess. And then Jeremy got up to go and leave to his... Uh, his particular hotel, and as he left, Sir Lawrence turned to me and Phoebe and said, I don't know, there's something about that young man. Every time he sticks his chin out, I want to punch it. <laughs> so there you are, poor old Jeremy. I wonder if he ever knew. Now, Privates on Parade, which you talked about a few minutes ago, both on stage and screen, has become one of your most favorite projects uh, over the years. And working with John Cleese, certainly 
allowed you the opportunity to work with him and the Pythons. How did that all come about? Oh, that was because of the film of Privates on Parade, which we made in Surrey. And in fact, it's fairly obvious that it was supposed to be sweaty Singapore. We had a yucca yucca plant that we kept moving around. And actually, it does look rather like the same one. But nonetheless, and we covered ourselves with glycerine sweat, made it look as though we were in tropical jungles. But the budget was rather minimal. And it was financed by George Harrison, handmade picture. But they decided that Nigel Hawthorne, who went on to become a knight, of course, was not a big enough name. So they replaced his part <laughs> of the vaguely insane commanding officer, Giles Flack, with somebody who was, of course, vaguely insane, or totally insane, John Cleese. And we spent oh, several weeks in various locations, in Surrey and oh, in the studio too. And we talked lots, and at the end of the filming he said, um, I think we've got more to talk about. I'm going on to do The Meaning of Life. There are only six of us, but um, occasionally we have sketches with seven people in. Would you be interested in doing some of those? Of course, I affected to look at my calendar to see whether I had, you know, the space and time. And, and so I moved on to do that. And that's where I met my wife, who was their manager, the American manager. So it was all definitely the meaning of life. Now, you finally landed here in America and in New York and mm. made your Broadway debut. Uh, you'd mentioned it actually at the top of the show in Stoppard's The Real Thing mm. uh, in 1984. And that brought you together with a number of actors that you're working with now. Can you talk about what your debut here in New York was and, and who your cast colleagues were then? Well, it was fairly grisly because um, I was replacing Kenneth Welch, who, uh, who left after about three months only. I think he had some other commitment. Obviously, he wouldn't leave it <laughs> for fun. And uh, my first night was the night after the Tonys. And so there was me, and there was Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, and Christine Baranski, who had all won Tonys the night before, and me. So I felt I had nothing to prove at all. And somehow we survived. Uh, and I did, and I did it for quite a long time with several cast changes. And, uh, and that's how I got familiar with living in New York. Now... You really have shared productions over the years, Simon, with truly some of the greats of the theater and, and film. But a few of them have had pretty popular reputations for being a little difficult. Sacred monsters, as we can, can call them, and one of which was Lauren Bacall with whom you appeared in Coward's um, Waiting in the Wings on Broadway in 1999. What was working with Betty Bacall really like? Well, the bizarre thing was, and I've always found this, whenever I've encountered many of these monstrous sacre, that they turn out to be pussycats treated the right way. And the thing about Betty B, as we called her, I'm not sure we did it to her face, but anyway, the, th <clears throat> the thing about her was that uh, if she respected you as a fellow professional, then there was nothing she wouldn't do. When my mother was admitted to hospital in England, she wrote the most delightful letter to her, which... Um, made her a star in the hospital as the letter was passed around, a, a letter from the legendary Lauren Bacall. Uh, she was very nice. She took a shine to my son. And um, the odd thing was she was perfectly horrid to the people she really relied on, like her hairdresser or her makeup person or the driver. And I never quite could understand why. Uh, she had this formidable reputation and um, she eviscerated our director at one stage and he was replaced by somebody else. But much to the applause of the rest of the cast because we didn't like him either. So, I mean, she had, the, she had the power, there's no doubt. But she also had the glamour, and she... Um, I had to speak as I find. I mean, yes, it was outrageous that she behaved to these people, but I wasn't there, and she wasn't doing it to me. And, uh, and we were friends for quite a long time after. 
One show that I'd really like to talk with you a little bit about is, of course, Blythe Spirit. And you did a national tour and a Broadway run, again, directed by Michael Blakemore here, mm. in which you played Dr. Bradman, of course, mm -hmm. and the truly great Angela Lansbury mm. appeared as Mata Marcotti. So can you talk about your, your really your friendship and your association with Angela Lansbury? Oh, she was just delightful uh, and so supportive all the way through. I don't quite remember. And now I can't ask her, sadly. I can't quite remember how we actually got to know each other. I think it was simply because we were mutually British and we'd met somewhere socially. But uh, I was cast in A Murder, She Wrote, back in the mid-80s which I gave probably the most embarrassing performance of my career, I think. I can hardly watch it. But what distinguished that particular episode was that uh, Patrick McGowan, playing the prosecuting counsel, it was apparently set in Toronto, though nobody had a Canadian accent, and it was in fact filmed in the Pasadena Town Hall. Never mind. He actually did refer to the fact that it was a little strange that so many of her relatives had been accused of capital crimes over the years. I mean, he might just as well have said, isn't it a little odd that everywhere you go, people drop dead? But he didn't do that. Because they never do. For some reason, that series always annoyed me, because they never, ever. She never even said, oh, here we go again. And, you know, how many? 600 episodes later? And she, she was a, a plague. Um, anyway, be that as it may, she was, she was delightful. And she told me <laughs> one of the secrets of playing Jessica Fletcher was to have three expressions. And, uh, and she demonstrated them for me. And I see them every time when I watch an episode. Sort of uh, interest, puzzlement, suspicion. And yeah, I always see them. There they are. I mean, she had to develop a shorthand after 600 episodes. What else would you do? Now, we've talked a lot in the show about your various appearances in plays by Noel Coward. Mm. Is there a secret to performing coward? I mean, the wit is just so sharp and incisive. Is there a technique? How do you handle that? Well, uh, actually, I have a letter from Noel Coward to Roderick Cook. Roderick Cook produced a thing called O Coward, a review of his work, uh, while Coward was still alive. And he wrote to Noel to get uh, various tips, and one of them was how to play comedy, his comedy. And uh, I have this letter, and the letter says, the secret of my comedy is never to play funny upon funny. The lines are funny in themselves, just say them. And uh, that's true. I think anyone who tries to play Noel Coward as funny will fall on their faces. It's true of so many comedy scripts. The less you do, the more the lines speak for themselves. And I think that's sound advice. And with that, Simon and I will take a short break, but we'll be back. There is so much more to say. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I am joined by actor Simon Jones, known to many as Bannister the Butler on the HBO series The Gilded Age. So many in the Gilded Gentleman audience will certainly know you from two of your most recent projects, and that certainly would be your portrayal of King George V in the 2019 uh, film of Downton Abbey, and of course, as, as Bannister in the Van Ryan uh, household as the butler on Julian Fellow's latest uh, The Gilded Age on HBO. So I really would like to start a little bit with your role on, on Downton. How did that role come about? Well, again, it was, uh, it was not exactly an audition. I, I met Gareth Neem quite socially in the Savile Club in London, and uh, we got on very well, and he suddenly had the idea that, even though I didn't grow the beard that I wear now, that I, I might be just the person to do George V. I don't know why, but he was clearly right. I mean, as far as I'm concerned. And um, 
my agents had the goal, my London agents, to say, we've got you an appointment to see the, the, the producer of uh, Downton Abbey. What he neglected to ask me, Gareth, was whether I could ride. And of course, I have already described my rather scarring experience some 40 years previously. And my first scene was to inspect the King's Troop Royal Horse Artillery uh, in a, the recreation ground at Castle Coombe in Wiltshire with the entire cast seated on daises and chairs, the regimental band, and an army of extras. And God knows what expense, uh, with cameras on, well, not drones, on arms and things following me around. And uh, I was supposed to look like a member of the royal family who's entirely at home by being on a horse. So I said to Gareth, I've got to do something. This is a nightmare to me, but yes, all right. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to not do it. So I went off to... uh, to a farm called the Devil's Horseman, who supply all sorts of creatures, even to Star Wars, in, but mainly for movies. And they're used to people riding horses who uh, aren't particularly happy with them. Uh, they found me the most wonderful horse who actually would have done everything without my having to do anything, and he did. I had, ha- I'd had help to get on, and I had to hold a field marshal baton in one hand, so I only had one hand for the reins. And, uh, and the commanding officer of the King's Troop was next to me, and we just set off round the, uh, round the troops, inspecting. And then suddenly I realized my, both my feet had fallen out of the stirrups. I said, what am I to do? He said, uh, well, bend down and put your boots back in again. I said, I can't. I'm holding a field marshal's baton and the reins in the other hand. He said, well, you better just clench your thighs then. So I clenched my thighs. And we got round and we did it in four takes. And I think he was rather grateful for that. It's a stunning scene. You look great. great. <laughs> I mean, I do look as though I know what I'm doing. And it now, was hell. <laughs> now, I have to ask, what, what was it like working with Dame Maggie Smith, who, of course, you've had a long friendship and association with as well? Well, not that, not that enormous. I mean, I know a lot of mutual friends, but she I don't know as well. I, I, I know her son, Toby Stevens, well, because we did Ring Around the Moon on Broadway. But I don't, I don't know Maggie that well, actually. In fact, I, I got in touch with some friends and said, will you, will you be nice, you know, ask her to be nice to me, because I'm, I'm quite sure, you know, how she might be. I don't know why I was so feeble. If I could handle Betty Bacall, I could handle Maggie Smith. My favorite scene, however, was when she curtsies to me when I arrived at uh, Downton Abbey. And, uh, and I thought, this is something for the book, helping Dame Maggie up. May I help you? And she said, if you don't, I don't think I'll ever get up. Or she says something to that effect. Anyway, she was very nice. She was delightful. And she was particularly keen on playing Bananagram, which we played in between takes. I don't know whether you know Bananagram. It's a sort of scrabble without a board. She's particularly lethal at it, I might say. Now, when you played the king on Downton Abbey Mm. in between takes, there were a number of people in the cast that were not on camera that did bow and curtsy to you. In other words... Well, kept not, you in character, am I correct? Well, did not, not intentionally, and not the rest of the cast. But some of the extras were clearly convinced, because it was funny when they'd come on set and I was there already, they'd go, little bow of the head, little, little dip from the ladies. I thought, hmm. I mentioned it to Gareth. I think I'm getting delusions of grandeur here. And I think that's probably why I ended up playing Bannister the butler, because apparently they, uh, Julian and... and, and Gareth and the producer and the director, Michael Engler, were trying to come up with somebody to be the butler in The Gilded Age, who was the exact opposite of Carson, or at least not like Carson. And I think they all put their heads together and said, how about the king? That'll cut him down to size. So um, now, instead of bowing, people throw their coats and hats at me. You know, that's the way it is. 
I can't wait to talk with you about Bannister. So many people love that character, love you in the role of of Bannister. I'm curious by the comment that you just made that, that Bannister is the exact opposite of Carson. Can you explain that? Yes. I, yeah, and I don't quite know, yes, whether I am quite. I think I probably have an air of perhaps uh, reduced grandeur. Um, maybe I'm, I'm a distressed, maybe I'm yes, a distressed member of the gentlefolk who has been forced to become a butler, whereas Carson was trained to be a butler. And, I mean, I don't know whether that's going on at all. Who knows what my past is? I haven't really gone into it, to be honest. But here I am in America where there is a demand for English butlers. I did know a professional butler. He was a delightful man called Mr. Knapp. He'd been a merchant banker. It wasn't his real name. And he used to uh, hire himself out for shoots in Scotland. And uh, and once once dropped a grapefruit in the lap of the Queen Mother. She nearly caused him to commit harakiri then and there. It's one of those things you just don't do. But uh, no, he was greatly respected, and he taught lots of people how to be butler. So if you can stand it, it's probably quite... Quite an interesting thing to do. I would say it was bloody hard work in the Gilded Age because you're up at the crack of dawn before everybody. You have to look impeccably smart. Though I read something rather strange in a Newport newspaper fairly recently talking about the series, saying that the, the butler always made a deliberate mistake in his outfit. Maybe a button slightly wrong, an egg on the uh, trousers or the watch fob not quite in the right pocket, so that he wouldn't be mistaken for the master of the house. I find that a little improbable, I must confess. I mean, I can't imagine Bannister turning up anything but impeccably dressed. Uh, nor can I. Nor, or Carson, for that Yeah, well, absolutely. How did you evolve the part? How did you evolve the character? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm ba- I basically play myself, actually, uh, with a sense of what I have to do. I mean, it is, I'm a butler. I'm running this household. I have to keep people in line. Not to a point. I'm a reasonably benign dictator. Also, at the same time, I do have an eye to the main chance, as you realize from the first season. But when you've been offered a bribe of what is the equivalent of $2,900 in order to serve at one lunch, and your mistress may not know about it, I defy anyone not to take the, uh, take the offer. Oh, we all cheered for you, not to worry. But that is certainly good, one good. of the, <laughs> that is one of the most people famous. people how could you betray your mistress? <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the most famous scenes, really, in, in the first season. And, and can you talk about filming that scene when you take a little side job across the street to serve at the Ward McAllister lunch with, with Bertha Russell? What was it like filming that scene and, and creating that moment? Well, the great fun was that I was actually able to get into that set because uh, that's at a different place, Goldcrest Studios off exit 42 of the Long Island Expressway, whereas we are off Woodhaven Boulevard in Queens. The interiors of both our houses, the exteriors are out at uh, exit 48, near the Museum of American Armor, which is something that really puzzled me, but I realize it means tanks, not uh, knights in armor. Um, And there we have the street, the exterior. So, in other words, those scenes were were filmed in three different places. I'd leave the house, go down the steps in another location, and cross into the other one. Uh, In fact, the costume department were mortified. Because they said, they said, you're wearing the wrong vest as you cross the street. I said, you're, you have to be, you cannot have told. I'm moving. Uh, and they said it was not their fault. But it was black. And I think there's a slightly different angle to the, um, to the shape of the bottom of the vest. I don't think anyone, in, people will complain about other things, like what make of horses are we using. In fact, uh, 
I think it was uh, Liz Truebridge, one of the producers of Downton Abbey, said that uh, it is amazing what people notice. They had a scene set in November in Downton Abbey in the series, and there was a sound of birdsong outside, and somebody wrote in or emailed or whatever and said, of course, it's quite wrong because uh, that particular bird, whose song is very recognisable, would have uh, flown south the month before. So you wouldn't have been there. You can't win sometimes, you can't right? Win. You just no. can't win. Can you talk a little bit about the set? Because I think that's something that's really quite fascinating to yes. people, what it really looks like, mm. and how does that turn into what we see on the screen? Yes, well, what's, what's extraordinary is that huge hallway in, uh, in the Russell House with a mighty staircase and the enormous chandelier is all in a set. And so are the adjoining rooms. You can actually walk from one room to the other. So it must be an enormous space out at Gold Coast Studios. Ours is a little more self-contained because we're just the interior of our house, which is pretty well like this. I think it's a little, oh, I don't know, it's about the same length as this house, yeah. I mean, they are strange little planets of their own. And whatever's happening outside doesn't matter. As for the actual street itself, it bears no resemblance to East 61st Street now, which has the Pierre, where our house would have been, and an apartment block where theirs would have been. So, of course, they've, they've made one, and it goes up to the second floor, and then there's a green strip outlining the edges of the buildings, and all that's added later. But I'm curious in portraying a character, in developing a role. When you have a play, you have a beginning and an end, and you can create a tension. You can create this chemistry with your characters. From my understanding of filming TV, and Mm -hmm. certainly in film, particularly in a series, you're filming one scene weeks or months before you film another scene, which happens just following the one that you just did. There's there's not a sense of, of sequential filming at all. Does that challenge how you portray a character? It would, I think, if, if, if my character had more of an emotional arc. I've managed to keep mine to a minimum in order to avoid too much of that stress. But if I was uh, falling in love and then falling out of love and then plunging despair, I would really have to keep reminding myself where I was in the script. And I'm always very impressed by the way people do that. And it is uh, interesting from our point of view. Uh, we do our filming uh, according to the availability of the space. We can go to the studios pretty well, but Newport, you can only go before the season and at the end. And they go up to Troy for downtown Manhattan, which has a wonderfully preserved Victorian downtown, apparently. I'm, I've not been there yet because I, my character's not wandered around downtown Manhattan. I never know quite where I'm going to go. Poor, poor Mrs. Bauer, the cook, she never gets upstairs except once to pay, I think, her gambling debt to, to Miss, Miss Ada. So, Simon... Of all the roles that you've performed, stage, screen, TV, is there a particular role that you'd like to do again and maybe do it differently? Having, having been 16 years old when I played Old Marlowe in um, She Stoops to Conquer, and now I'm about the right age, uh, I could probably bring something new to that. Like, for example, not leaping out of the chair with quite such alacrity, um, because I now know that it takes a little more effort. I think that's a fine example. I think that's a good example. Now, (laughs) is there a particular role that you have not yet played that you would like to play? Oh, yes. Um, I I would love to be a James Bond villain. And I think it would complete the circle as my cousin has been James Bond, you know. And it would make a rather good story. So pick it up, PR people. Well, we cannot wait to see the next season Mm. of The Gilded Age and see what happens to Bannister and everyone 
else. And I hope you will come back on The Gilded Gentleman because there will be ever so much more to talk about at that point. Simon, thank you so much for joining me and The Gilded Gentleman today for this talk about your career, your roles. I'm so grateful that you've been here. Thank you so much. Oh, great pleasure, Carl. What could be better massage for the ego than sit talking about yourself for 50 minutes? (laughs) Well, I'm so honored that you have joined me here today, and I hope you will come back. There are so many other things to talk about. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. To stay up to date on upcoming podcasts, special tours, and events, make sure to sign up for The Gilded Gentleman monthly newsletter, and you can do that on thegildedgentleman.com. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Gold.